Happy New Year. Anybody happy this New Year? There we go. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Maybe you guys are all recovering from too much Happy New Year. I don't know. All right. Well, it's good to uh, be together this morning to worship, to uh, most of all honor the Lord, to focus on Him, to set aside our hearts and our minds and our thoughts for a moment and just devote this time to Him. As we do that this morning, let's start with prayer and just come into His presence. Father, we do indeed just stand in awe that uh, Jesus is the Ancient of Days, that uh, He is enthroned at this moment in heaven, uh, is bringing everything under His dominion and authority, subjecting every power and rule under His, uh, his dominion. And uh, we thank You that someday, indeed, every tongue and tribe and nation will bow and worship and will declare Jesus as Lord. And we want to do that this morning, just by gathering, just by being here, we want to acknowledge and proclaim Jesus as Lord and uh, lift up uh, your name. We willingly and joyfully bow our hearts before you and acknowledge you as our King and our Savior. We just pray that you would speak to us from your word. We pray that you would touch each heart by your touch, by your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we'll be looking this morning in John chapters, uh, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Um, you know, one of the questions that, that I've wrestled with, thought about, um, I've heard a lot of people as I've shared Christ and tried to share the gospel ask, you know, if God is really God, if he's really the creator of the universe, why doesn't he do more to prove it? You know, why doesn't God, you know, why doesn't God send more lightning bolts, really? Why doesn't he just light people up? And really, there's been a lot of times when I wish I had just the, you know, power on demand. You know, people say, well, how do you know God is real? And you could just say, well, watch this. And like, lightning bolt just strikes about two feet away from him. It's like, well, how's that? Next time we can get closer if you're not convinced. You know, I can aim. God can aim. Uh, I've always thought it would be fun, people, you know, giving you a hard time and giving you a hard time about being a Christian. If you could just, like, say, yeah, we'll take this. And, you know, their, their car just magically ends up on top of, like, some really tall building. You know, you could just, like, say, you know, see, God's powerful. And it would be, I just think, you know, if God would, would give us the ability to demonstrate that power more, surely more people would be convinced and would believe and follow God. But God in his wisdom thankfully hasn't given me anyway that kind of power for probably very good reasons because I may not always use it most, the most responsibly. Um, but it's interesting even looking at the life of Jesus uh, who did have all of God's power at his fingertips certainly um, used it to perform incredible miracles. But even with Jesus, there, there were limits to its effectiveness. And this morning we want to look at this question and, uh, you know, why doesn't God do more really to prove his power? Certainly if God would, would, would work more powerfully, more people would believe, right? Uh, but that's actually not true. And as we look at the, uh, the scripture this morning, we'll see that, that there really are significant limits to miracles in terms of their apologetic effect in terms of their ability to convince people that God is, tr is true, that Jesus is real. Uh, so let's look at that. And, and actually kind of a sub-theme that goes along with this is, um, you know, we think that if we could do this, we would also with it receive more honor. You know, we kind of want to be like Elijah. In fact, I would love to be an Elijah and challenge the prophets of anybody to a duel and see God rain down fire, and it would, make, it would validate Christianity. That's kind of what we think. But Jesus uh, illustrates, and John really illustrates for us in John chapter 4 and 5, why it doesn't work that way. So let's look, beginning at verse 43 of chapter 4. It says, At the end of two days' stay in Samaria, and if you remember, if you've been with us, 
Uh, we've been spending some time with Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus stayed there for two days, teaching them. It says at the end of two days' stay, Jesus went on to Galilee, resumed his trip on into Galilee. He had previously said, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own country. The Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen all his miracles, all of his signs and wonders. In the course of his journey through Galilee, he arrived at the town of Cana, where he had turned the water into wine, which John lists as his first miraculous sign, by the way. Uh, There was a government official in the city of Capernaum whose son was very sick, When he had heard that Jesus had come from Judea and was traveling in Galilee, he went over to Cana. He found Jesus and begged him to come to Capernaum with him to heal his son who was about to die. Um, So you're going to get the setting of this story. Jesus has just been uh, ministering in Jerusalem at a a, um, Passover celebration where he cleansed the temple, uh, created and drew lots of attention to himself, performed many miracles, and really drew quite a large crowd and gathering. After that, he goes and he baptizes and teaches in a vicinity near where John was at that time baptizing. Uh, From there, he goes through Samaria on his way to Galilee in the north, and while he's there, he meets the woman at the well. Uh, He offers her the well of life, the water of life, and uh, she becomes this amazing evangelist, goes into her town, tells everybody what Jesus has done, and the whole town of Samaria which were kind of the enemies of the Jews, the least likely people that a Jew would have expected to receive the good news. And yet, they flock out to meet Jesus. And uh, Jesus spends two days, they beg him, won't you stay, won't you teach us? Jesus spends two days there, and at the end of that two days, they all proclaim, we believe you because we see that you are the Savior of the world. First on the witness of this lady, but now because we have heard the word of Christ. And they gladly welcomed and received him. They had this little mini revival there, and they were excited about Jesus. From there, Jesus goes to Galilee, and John says, by the way, Jesus said in his own words, a prophet is without honor in his own home. Uh, And then it says that the Galileans welcomed him. Now, if you're a serious student of the Bible, these two verses will drive you crazy. And in fact, there have been all kinds of commentaries on what in the world John's talking about here because it seems somewhat contradictory and confusing. Uh, Main point here is that uh, signs don't always produce respect. And Jesus is aware of that. And right at the very beginning of his entrance, leaving Samaria, going into Galilee, his hometown, his home country, his home turf, he makes this declaration, you know, I'm not real, real world... I am not real well respected at home. I'm not real well respected among my own people. Um, What does he mean by uh, in his own hometown? There's a lot of debate about that. Did he mean Nazareth? Does he mean the wider vicinity of Nazareth and Galilee? Uh, Without going into all the arguments, probably Jesus is making a general statement here about his own people in general. He's just been in Samaria, not with his people, not with Jews, but with Samaritans. He's now going back into Jewish territory, and he's really saying, and it's reflected through, it's a theme that's repeated throughout the rest of the book of John, that his own people, meaning the Jews in general, did not receive him, did not honor him, did not give him the respect that the Samaritans just had. The Samaritans had welcomed Jesus and believed him and proclaimed, this is the Savior of the world. Uh, he goes to Galilee, and they're not proclaiming that. There's no big, pat, big banners up over the road that say, Welcome, Savior of the world. Okay? He's not getting that kind of welcome or reception. Okay? He says, you know, a, a prophet is without honor in his home. It's a theme that is repeated numerous times through the book. In John chapter 6, uh, it says, The people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said... Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can you say, I came down from heaven? Okay? They say, we know this guy. We know his family. Who is he? Chapter 7. But here he is. Again, the crowd's complaining. Here's Jesus speaking in public, and they say, that is, the leaders of the Jews say nothing to him. 
Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. Interesting theology. <laughs> um, they should have read the Old Testament, actually. Uh, John 7, again, when the crowds heard Jesus say this, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. But others said, he is the Messiah. And still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? Okay. Uh, they, they knew who he was. They knew where he was from. Israel was a small country. Whether he was in Jerusalem or in Galilee, they knew Jesus. They knew where he came from. They knew his country. And I believe Jesus is referring here to his own people who did not honor him. Uh, you know, the truth is, we tend to be more, we tend to give more respect and honor to people who we don't know. And you know how it is when you travel, you know, if I go to a foreign country, to a place I've never been before, and I'm the guest speaker, they think I'm great. You know, they think, man, this guy's awesome. Because they don't know me. But if I am at home with my wife and family, I'm not so great. It's like, eh, we know this guy. We live with him. Um, there's something about familiarity that tends to diminish, uh, you know, we can put people on a pedestal that we don't know. Uh, that was happening to Jesus. They said, we know Galileans. They're just farmers. They're hicks. They're backward people. Uh, Jesus is just one of these backward people. How could he be anything spectacular? It's a bit ironic that the Jews were looking for a Messiah, and the Jews wouldn't have ex would not have accepted anybody except a Jew. Okay, they wouldn't have, you know, if, if somebody had come from Babylon and said, I'm the Messiah, they wouldn't have received him because he wasn't a Jew. But ironically, they wouldn't accept a Jew because he was one of them. They were confused people, okay? And they weren't receiving him, and they weren't giving him honor. And Jesus says, as he enters back into his home country, I'm going into a place where I'm not very well respected. I'm going into a mission field, if you will, where people aren't really giving me any real credibility, where they're not really giving me any attention, where they're not really respecting me, and ultimately, most importantly, a people who are not declaring, behold, this is the Savior of the world. Okay? And Jesus was aware of that. Um, it doesn't... They, they were, however, impressed with him. They were impressed but not convinced. Okay? And this is where science can create problems. Science can be impressive. And science can cause miracles, can cause people to, 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 to flock. But just because they are attracted or find it interesting or impressed doesn't mean that they are convinced by what you stand for or believe or teach. It's interesting. It says, Jesus says, a prophet's without honor in his own country. And then it says the Galileans welcomed him. Um, it sounds really confusing. Uh, and it's sad that some translations really don't, the, the New Living in this case doesn't do a very good job translating it. Let me give you my own kind of a more literal translation. It says, Jesus says that prophets without honor is without honor in his own country. When therefore, important conjunction, when therefore Jesus came into Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen as much or all that he did at the festival, for they had been there. In other words, they weren't necessarily receiving him and welcoming him as the Messiah, but they thought he, was, he could do cool tricks. They had seen what he had done at the festival, they had been impressed, and so they welcomed him only on the basis of his magic show. And they kind of wanted in on the action. They wanted to see more of this. Uh, but they were not convinced about his message. They weren't really receiving him, certainly as the Messiah, or as the one who had come to save them. Uh, they were only giving him uh, the respect of one who impressed them by putting on a good show, but they weren't really convinced by his message, or who he said he was. Unlike the Samaritans, in contrast, who acknowledged him as a savior of the world. Um, and into this setting, where Jesus is not real honored, not real respected, uh, comes a man in desperate need. <clears throat> Interesting enough, even in this, uh, this official comes, his son is desperately ill, 
he comes. And even in this, you don't get the, the, the picture or the idea that this, this official has any real respect or acknowledgement of Jesus as the Messiah. You get the idea that this guy is just desperate. He's heard about Jesus, that he can do cool stuff, that he could maybe heal his son. He comes out of desperate need as a last-ditch effort to get help for his son. Not because he believes he's the Messiah, not because he wants to worship or honor him or pay worship to him as one sent from God, but simply a, a desperate man who needed help. And so he comes to Jesus. His son was dying, and it says that he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum with him to heal his son. And Jesus says, must I, must I do miraculous signs and wonders before you people will believe me? It's in plural there. He doesn't really say this to the man, but he kind of says it to the whole crowd. He really says it to Galilee in general. He says, do I have to do signs and miracles before you will believe me? Well, if he were to ask me that question, I would say, well, yeah. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and the official... The official is just a desperate man, and he pleads with him. He says, Sir, please come before my little boy dies. He doesn't acknowledge Jesus. He doesn't, doesn't give any indication that he knows who Jesus is or really cares. He just says, Look, my boy's dying. I think you could help me. Would you please just come help? I don't care about the theology. I don't care about all this. I just, I, I just want my little boy to live. By the way, the word that's used there uh, describes a very small infant. So maybe this was a newborn baby, maybe a year old, and this was a father who just would do anything to see his son live. And he traveled a fair distance from Capernaum to Cana um, to search out Jesus in desperate need. Um, <coughs> Jesus, of course, uh, helps the man. He says, go back home, your son will live. And the man believed Jesus' word and started home. And while he was on his way, some of the servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. Um, one of the problems with miracles, uh, as with this man, is that oftentimes it can focus on our short-term problem, not our long-term need. Uh, Jesus uh, could help this guy's short-term uh, crisis, really, to heal his son, but this guy really wasn't looking for what Jesus could really offer. When you compare this with the woman at the well, the woman at the well came to the point where she realized she needed living water that would quench the thirst of her soul. This guy was nowhere near that. Um, Jesus in his grace heals anyway. Jesus in his grace meets this man in his time of need, and as we'll see in a, in a minute, uh, it does produce faith in him, and it does have an impact. Um, but the point, the point of this whole kind of picture, this whole story, and it's a theme, as I said, is repeated throughout the book, is that miraculous signs don't necessarily guarantee that it elevates our message. Okay? It doesn't guarantee that. Now, we'll see, sometimes it does. And certainly Jesus did these signs and miracles to confirm his message and to prove that he was indeed sent from God. But it doesn't always have that effect. And you see Jesus going to this land... Uh, where he wasn't honored, he wasn't received as the Messiah, they didn't listen to his message, and in spite of all these miracles, they were a bit impressed, but not terribly moved. They weren't shaken by his miracles. Um, and one of the things that is just remarkable to me is that in the midst of all this, Jesus still pursues his mission to the Jews. Uh, not so much in John, but in the other Gospels, Jesus makes it very clear that his main mission was to come to bring, uh, the, bring the kingdom to, 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 to the Jews. And at, at a point, they, they, it was clear they had rejected it, and Jesus opens that up. And, uh, of course, you know, Paul and the other apostles come, and they bring it beyond the boundaries of Judaism. But Jesus made it very clear that his primary focus and mission was to the Jews. That was his first target audience, if you will. In fact, in the other Gospels, he tells his disciples, when you go out, go only to the, to the towns of, Jude, of, of the Jews. Don't go to Samaria. Some people think that one of the reasons he may have said that was because they had experienced such good success in Samaria. Now, if you're, like, if you're, if you're, um, if you're a church planter, you go where, people, where there's a harvest. And maybe they were thinking, well, it went so well in Samaria. Forget the Jews, let's go to Samaria. But Jesus says, no. 
Uh, not yet. Our focus right now is to take the good news of the kingdom to, the, to, to, to my people, to the Jews. Um, and it's interesting Jesus' attitude in the face of this knowledge that they don't honor him. They don't respect him. They don't receive his message. In the end, they take that rejection so far that they actually kill him. They take this dishonor to the point that they, in, in time, nail him to the cross. And yet Jesus is uh, passionate about his mission. And this really illustrates what he had said, what he had told his disciples at the well. When he said this, it says, Meanwhile the disciples were urging Jesus to eat, and he said, No, I have food you don't know about. And they said, Who brought it to him? And Jesus explained, My nourishment, my food, comes from doing the will of God who sent me and finishing his work. Uh, Jesus really lived this out. He said, I have come with one focus in my life, and that is to do what God sent me to do, to accomplish his will, to focus on finishing his work. Jesus was not moved by whether or not people liked him or not. Jesus was not at all moved or affected by whether or not he got honor out of his work. Uh, as I thought about this, this like just you know, ran over me like a freight train because that's usually not how I operate. You know, I want to serve God. I want to do good things. I want to you know, see people get saved. And for me, I often link that with honor. I think that if I'm being fruitful and effective, if I'm really serving God, that I'm going to be honored in the process. But the reality is that often it's not that way. Now, sometimes it is. Sometimes uh, people we minister to and work with and, and serve do honor us. And that's a good thing. Uh, but often it's not that way. Often we go to people and, who desperately need the gospel and we share the gospel with them and they throw rocks at us, right? Or they tell us we're stupid. Or they tell us we're wrecking their culture. Or they chase us out of town. They cancel our visa. You know, they don't let us come back in their country, right? Uh, they don't always honor us because of our mission, because of our work. Um, oftentimes, we go and we, we have the truth of life. We know that the Word can change their lives, right? And you go and you share and you teach and you preach, and they don't believe you. And they say, well, that's not really our culture. We don't do it that way here. And you say, yeah, but don't you get it? And they dishonor us because they don't, they don't receive our message. Or they twist it or they change it. Um, how do we respond to that? What do we do when we are not receiving honor? Uh, it can happen in our, in our work situation where our co-workers, or those who work under us or who are our bosses, don't respect us. And you know we know we have the right answers, we know what we're doing, but they don't think we have the right answers. You ever had that happen? We know we're right and they think they're right and we clash and we disrespect each other. How do we handle that? Uh, it can happen in our homes and in our families. Uh, as I said, people who know us most closely oftentimes is the hardest place to find honor because they know all of our flaws and faults. And maybe in our homes we don't honor each other very well. How do we respond to that? Um, the truth is we all, we all want to be honored. And there is something that God created in us that desires that but when we try to find that honor from people, we will very often be sadly disappointed. Jesus did not let it affect him. Jesus didn't, and Jesus could have said this. He could have said, well, forget the Jews. You don't like me anyway. I'll just go back to Samaria. It would have been so tempting for him to say that. Um, you know, there's a harvest there. People were, were uh, I mean, there was a good start for a, a great church plant there. People were receiving the word. They wanted him to stay. He could have you know, they'd have built them a house. They would have built them a church. But Jesus said, knew that was not his Father's will. And he was motivated by God's mission, not by what people thought. He was motivated by God's will, not by how people treated him. He was more concerned, ultimately, about what the Father thought of his life than what people thought. Uh, this is a dangerous trap for us, and it's so subtle it is so subtle that we can be derailed from ministry, from service, because 
we feel not respected. Uh, you know, this is how it happens, and it's happened in my own life. Uh, you know, as a pastor, uh, you have the choice of, of either trying to please and serve and satisfy 300 people or serve and satisfy God. And this is how it works. If you try to make 300 people happy, out of 300 people, there's always one that doesn't like, at least one, if not 50, who don't like something or who criticize something or who are offended by something. Always. And uh, regardless of how the 299 are happy about something, if there's one who's not, what do you focus on? Well, the one who didn't like something because you're not getting the honor. You're not pleasing them. You're not getting affirmed by them. And it can eat you up and it can make you depressed and frustrated and it can make you be defensive. And you can spend all your energy trying to make sure everybody's happy. But when you do that, you will wash out of ministry and you will not be effective because you will live for the honor of man and you will, in the end, not accomplish God's will. Jesus knew the truth that when you do God's will, sometimes it really makes people angry. Uh, Jesus knew that for him, following the Father's will would ultimately end in them hating him to the point of death. But he was committed to the Father's will regardless of what people thought about it. Do we have that resolve in life and ministry? Do we have that resolve to stand up and do what's right even if everybody laughs at us or mocks us or makes fun of us? Uh, if you're at school and you know what's, what the other students are doing is wrong and you stand up and say, this is not right, and they laugh at you and make fun of you, are you willing to stand and take that knowing it honors God even if it means dishonor among people? Jesus was committed to that. Um, and his focus was first and foremost on God's mission, not on how people felt about it. Uh, and so consequently... For him, signs and miracles were not a way to esteem himself. Okay, he didn't do these miracles to impress people so that they would honor him. Uh, you know, sadly, and, and I, I do believe in miracles. I believe we should pray for miracles. I believe God still wants to do miracles. But all too often, those who are miracle workers do it for the sake of their own ego and glory. And uh, perhaps one of the reasons so few people are really gifted with this is it's so easy to use it for the sake of our own glory because it can be impressive. And we confuse impressing people with really uh, receiving the honor of people who follow our message. Well, Jesus didn't get caught up in that. And he was pure enough and had the integrity to keep focused on God's purpose and will. He didn't fall into that trap. Um, signs... Second, second main point, because first sign is signs don't always, um, they don't always impress people. Well, they impress people, but they don't always bring about conviction. Okay? Second thing, uh, and more importantly, is that signs and miracles ultimately don't always, or maybe even often, really change people. Um, we, we live with this idea or this conviction or belief that if somebody saw a miracle, it would be life-changing for them. And in some cases that's true, but, but remarkably in the Gospels, most of the time it wasn't true. And these, these two stories, um, this story and the next story in chapter 5, kind of uh, illustrate this. Throughout the Gospel of John, uh, the signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, really have limited value. Uh, let me just give you a couple examples. Um, in John chapter 6, we'll, we'll, we'll study and we'll learn about the feeding of the 4,000. Very impressive and spectacular miracle. If you want to do something that's a huge sign, you take you know, a handful of fish and bread, feed 4,000 people, that's a big, that's a big miracle. Okay, that's, that's a huge miracle. Um, and not only that, but to have baskets full of left, food left over is an impressive miracle. If you saw that, what would your response to that be? Well, I would be very impressed. And being people of faith that we are, uh, we would see Jesus greatly elevated. We'd go, man, that is, that is awesome. But notice the crowd's response. Uh, the next day, okay, Jesus feeds the 4,000. The next day, Jesus is trying to kind of evade the crowd. They find him. They chase him to the side of the lake. They find him. And uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. 
not because you understood the miraculous sign. He says, you know, you guys are just chasing a good show. You guys want free lunch. You know, that's all it's about. Is you know you can get a free lunch out of this deal. And you really don't get it. You don't get what the signs are about. He says, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. And then they replied, I could get this. Well, we want, you to, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Okay, this is kind of tempting. We don't want just God to do cool things. We want to do cool things. Uh, I, I, want to, I want to do cool things. I want to pray for people and see them get healed. I'd love to feed. I'd take 300, you know, if we could take the crackers and turn it into steak dinner. That would be cool. I'll take that. Um, Jesus says, this is, this is the only work God wants from you. He says, this is the work that God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Huge words. Jesus said, this is what God wants. He doesn't want you doing cool things. What God really wants is your faith. He wants the response of faith in your life. And they answer, okay, this is their answer, get this. Well, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? What can you do? What are they saying? He just fed 4,000 people, and they want another sign? You know, what's wrong with these people? Well, obviously, they're not getting it. They just saw a sign, but it wasn't enough. They want more. They want something bigger. They want something more spectacular. You see, it's really not making an effect. They just saw 4,000 people fed. Actually, it was more than that, 4,000 men. It went right by them. And the next day they're going, well, if you really want us to believe you, show us a cool sign. Wow. Wow. It just went right by them. Uh, Later, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. Um, And Jesus does this incredible miracle. Um, And after that, people respond. It says some got mad at Jesus because he was working on the Sabbath. Others said, how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs and there was a deep division of opinion among them Jesus gives sight to a blind man what happens well some kind of believe a lot think you know he was breaking the Sabbath and there was division okay well how about this one raising the dead it doesn't get much better than that raising the dead Uh, Jesus raises Lazarus in John chapter 11 um, afterwards, it says some believed, but others went and told the Pharisees what they had done. Okay, some went and they were tattletales. And the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together, and they said, what are we going to do? This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. We better kill him. Okay? Uh, obviously, it didn't have a real life-changing effect. Well, it had a life-changing effect for Jesus. They, tried, they killed him. They did kill him. That was like the final straw. Okay? You see, the truth is that miraculous signs and wonders do not always, in fact, do not often produce faith. In fact, I would say, and I would argue, we'll see this in a minute, that I don't think miracles or signs ever produce faith. Okay? I don't think somebody seeing a miracle ever produces in them faith. And we'll see in a minute why. One last, one last quote from John chapter 12. It says, But in spite of all the miraculous signs Jesus did, had done, all the signs he had done, most of the people still did not believe him. Most of the people did not believe him. Um, I really believe that miraculous signs and wonders, the reason God doesn't do them more often, uh, and, he, and I believe he never does them to prove himself because they don't, in and of themselves, produce faith. Let's go back to into chapter 4. Um, the, uh, the official comes and he brings his son to be healed. Um, and Jesus, uh, you know, he's not really honoring Jesus. He doesn't come to acknowledge him as the Messiah. He comes out of desperate need. But Jesus says, and in fact, the wording here is actually kind of rude. It says he begs, and he really does beg, but in the midst of his begging, he commands Jesus to do this. He uses the imperative. 
He's an official. He was working for King Herod Antipas. He was most likely a Jew, but working for this, uh, for Herod. Um, he's a guy that's used to bossing people around. He basically shows up and says to Jesus, go heal my son. If you can do this, go do it. Okay, not, not, not like, you know, please, you know, I, I okay, not a lot of respect here. But Jesus um, answers back, well, go home. He, he actually uses an imperative. He uses a command, go home, your son's healed. Okay, real compassionate, warm, friendly exchange here. Uh, I'm sure after this they shared Christmas cards every year. Um, why? But the interesting thing is that, is that it says that the man believed Jesus' word and started home. Okay, this was not an act of great faith. This man did not come with great faith. But when Jesus said it's done, he believed Jesus' word and went home. In fact, in other words, he believed to the point that he took action based on what Jesus had promised. Uh, now, he wasn't saved. I don't think he recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But there was a little tiny seed of faith planted. And he responded in obedience and in faith. And he went home assured that, that Jesus was going to do some trick. And it says on the way home, his, his uh, servants show up. And they said, the boy's better. He's completely healed. And the man says, well, what time did it happen? And they said, well, it happened around 1 o'clock yesterday. And he knew that that was the exact hour that Jesus had spoke that word. And it says, then, then he believed Jesus. In other words, first time he believed his word, now he believes Jesus. And he and his whole household were saved. Uh, I really believe that this is a great and important progression. That for those for whom there is at least a seed of faith, a miracle produces greater faith. But for those with whom there is no seed of faith, the miracle just kind of bounces off, you know, the stone. Uh, he believed a little, and when he saw the miracle, he believed much more. And it was contagious, and it spread to his whole house. Because there was the seed of faith that could grow. Um, however, look at the next story. And this uh, is a larger story in chapter 5. We'll look at more detail next week. But uh, it says, Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, lame, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. And one of the men laying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew how long he had been ill... He asked him, would you like to get well? Okay, kind of seems like an obvious question, but, but get this guy's answer. You know, from this guy's answer, you're not quite sure if this means yes or no. He says, I can't, the sick man said, for I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am trying to get there, someone else always gets ahead of me. Okay, so is that yes or no? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, uh, this guy's been sick for 38 years, uh, it's, it's implied that he wasn't born sick, that he became ill at some point in his life. So this guy has spent a lot of years, you know, in a day when the average lifespan was probably only 40 to 45 years, this guy has spent a long time sick, paralyzed. He's unable to get himself from the porch into the pool. And I'm thinking, if, you know, if this guy really wanted to be healed bad enough, I'd be sitting, like, on the edge of the pool, um, there's a note in, in some translations, it's probably not in the original, that uh, the water would be stirred up, and at that time, the first guy in the pool would be healed. Uh, basically, a superstition that was held in Jerusalem, and people would be at this pool waiting for the water to, to bubble up, thinking that if they were the first one in, they would be healed. I'm thinking, if this guy really wanted to be healed, man, I'd be, I'd be just perched on the very edge of that pool. But of course, that would require being out in the hot sun. And so he had backed off into the cool shade of the porch, and uh, the water gets stirred up, and he couldn't get there in time. Something else this tells us about this guy. He wasn't really all that determined, I don't think. Secondly, um, he was alone. He said, there's nobody to help me. Well, why was there nobody to help him? Well, I think there's nobody to help him because this guy's just a loser. <laughs> okay, he's lame in more ways than one. He's 38 years old, and he doesn't have one single friend who will help drop him in this pool when the water is stirred up. Okay? 
And as, you, as the story unfolds, you know, you kind of get the impression this guy is just a jerk. Okay, he's not a nice person. And it's no wonder he was there alone. It's no wonder nobody would help him because nobody wanted to be around this guy. He's very abrasive to Jesus. Okay, you talk about not being, getting honor or respect. You know, he's grouchy, he's kind of sharp with Jesus. Um, all that aside, Jesus heals him anyway. Because remember, Jesus is not in it for his own honor. He's in it to do God's will. He says, he says, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And it says, immediately the man is healed. And then he's healed, he gets up, he takes up and rolls up his mat and he walks away. Um, impressive miracle. This guy has been sick for 38 years. He's so sick, he's so lame, he can't crawl from where he's at to the pool before everybody else beats him. For 38 years he's been doing this. Okay. Yeah, that's very determined, but he's very sick, very crippled. Instantly is he is healed. Now, if, if this happened, imagine if you've been sick for 38 years, crippled, and some guy comes up to you and he heals you, what would you do? I would want to know about this guy. I would, I would want to know, man, who are you that you could do this? Who are you that you have this kind of power? Tell me how to live my life. What does this guy do? He picks up his mat, he rolls up his bed, he walks off. He doesn't even ask Jesus' name. And he walks across and pretty soon one of the, uh, you know, the Jews were very good. They had church police. I really, we talked to the elders about implementing church police. I think it's a good thing. Uh, we just can't find any volunteers yet. Um, church police were out that day and they said it was a Sabbath and he's carrying his bed, his bed mat, which was against the law. They had 39 categories for breaking the Sabbath. And one of them had to do that whole category of carrying things. Okay, and on the list was your bed. We're not allowed to carry your bed unless there was a sick person on it. You could carry a bed with a sick person on it to get them emergency help. But he, this guy's carrying his bed. He says, what are you doing carrying that bed? You know, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the Sabbath. And what does this guy answer? He says, well, some guy, I don't even know his name, told me to do it. He healed me, and I'm just doing what he said. Okay, this, is, this guy's a real winner, you know. It's not like, man, my life has been changed by this wonderful person. No, it's like, this, this guy just told me to do it. He told me just to get up and carry my bed around. It's not my fault, okay? And I don't even know his name, <laughs> right? Um, I mean... Uh, the miracle didn't have a real deep effect on this guy, apparently. Um, and it's, it's significant that there was no seed of faith in this guy. You know, I don't think, I don't know why he sat at the pool, but it doesn't seem real apparent that he really believed he could be healed. He couldn't give Jesus a positive answer of faith. Yes, I believe and I want to be healed. Okay, there is no seed of faith. And God performs this amazing miracle in his life it goes right by him. No real response. It says that later Jesus finds him in the temple um, and he says to him, now you are well, so stop sinning or something may, much worse may happen to you. Okay, Jesus pulls the guy aside and says, look, I, I, I healed you, but you need to stop sinning. And Jesus implies here that his sickness was related to sin in his life. Okay, now thankfully God does not do this all the time. Okay, or we all would be coming in wheelchairs this morning. Okay, thankfully God's grace, he doesn't inflict all of us with what we deserve because of sin in our life. But clearly this man had been inflicted because of sin in his life. And the significant and important thing is that uh, the outward miracle had, had had no effect on the inward heart. And Jesus confronts him and he says, look, you have got to confess and repent. You need the inward change of new life through my word, through the promise, through, uh, through the gospel, or much worse things await you. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying if you keep sinning, you know, you're going like, to go blind or be ten times more crippled. I think he's just saying, you know, there comes a day of judgment. If you don't deal with the inward man, you will be eternally uh, condemned to judgment. You better deal with the sin in your life now. Stop sinning. Repent. Change your life. Um, 
what does the guy do? How does he respond to that? Does he confess, say, Lord, you're right, I'm sorry, I confess, I'm a jerk, I'm an idiot, you know, please forgive me? Is that what he does? No. What it says is he says, the man went to find the Jewish leaders and told them, Jesus is the guy who healed me. This guy's a winner. I mean, isn't he just like, this guy's great. Jesus heals him, gives him his legs back, does this incredible miracle, and he goes and tattles on Jesus. He sides with the Jewish leaders. He says, it's not my fault, it's that guy. That guy, that Jesus guy, he did this to me. Go get him, right? Okay, what's wrong with this guy? Well, you see, there was no seed of faith, and so the miracle produced no strengthening of faith. The miracle went by him, and it had no impact in his life. Um, where there is faith, miracles can, can do huge things to increase our faith. But you see, where there is no faith, miracles have little impact, have little effect, have really little meaning. And it's apparent that this, this guy didn't even understand it all. And Jesus has to confront him and tell him, you know, the real issue is not your legs, it's your heart. Um, which is the, the third and most important point of all, as we must be very careful that we don't think that somehow miracles will produce interchange in a person. Jesus was very aware that that was not the way it worked. That miraculous signs and wonders, cool outward things, don't really bring about an effective change in our heart. The only thing that does that is faith and repentance. And he challenges this guy, you know, the miracle's okay, but that's not what you need. What you need is not new legs, you need a new heart. You better deal with that issue of your life first. And throughout the gospel, that's what Jesus is really after. He's after men's hearts. Uh, he was after the woman at the well to, to quench the thirst of her soul because he knew that was her ultimate need, not the crippling things in her life of her t- dysfunctional family, her dysfunctional life. Um, Jesus' goal in all of his miracles was not outward healing, but permanent inward healing of the soul and the heart. That's what Jesus is after. Um, Moving people to true change. Um, And the reality is, my observation, it doesn't say this here in this passage of Scripture, although it's interesting, when Jesus goes to the pool of Bethsaida, uh, he heals one person out of a whole crowd. It's interesting, there are Dozens. It says there's a large crowd of people, lame, sick, uh, blind, lots of people in desperate need, lots of people where, God, where Jesus could have done very spectacular miracles. And Jesus chooses one person out of that crowd, and most likely the worst person of all. I mean, we don't know. But he didn't pick a winner here, okay? He picked a guy who was least deserving. Picture of God's grace. Um... And Jesus seemingly ignores all the rest. Why is that? Well, he doesn't say and he doesn't give an answer. But my observation just in life is this. If God's, Jesus' desire, God's goal is inward change in our, li- in our life, that God would use tools and means and methods to produce inward change first and foremost. And I don't know about you, but in my own life, most often, it seems that inward change is produced most often through my suffering and hardship, not through, uh, not through miracles. Sometimes miracles can be a great boost of faith. But true inward change in my own life has come most often through difficulties, through struggles, uh, through times when things did not go all that well. And it could be that one of the reasons Jesus left so many people infirmed is that that was God's gift in their life to produce the inward change that was required. I have a good friend who came to Christ not because of a miracle, but because he was suicidal. And uh, in fact, he had attempted suicide and he was found by a cop in a snowbank. Uh, and this cop picked him up and brushed him off and shared the gospel with him. And he was so desperate he believed, and it changed his life. Uh, How often is that true in our own life? Look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had seen miracles happening in Jerusalem. 
But God had to strike him blind before he could see the light and truth of Christ. Uh, you know, oftentimes what we need to pray for, I think, some, I mean, gets us in the right context. Maybe we need to be praying more for people's infliction than in their healing. You know, uh, I mean, we want to pray that carefully. <laughs> uh, but we need to realize that oftentimes God's good ultimate change is produced in us by those hard things, by those struggles, by those times of sickness, by those illnesses that don't go away so quickly. Oftentimes those produce far more faith, prayer, and dependence in us than the miracle that, that impresses us for a moment, but so quickly we forget. You say, hey, we wouldn't forget. We're not like that. We wouldn't forget. Kind of like the Israelites, God led them through the Red Sea. Amazing miracle. Watched the whole Egyptian army get drowned in the sea. Three days later, they were complaining and grumbling because God wouldn't give them water, right? We wouldn't be like that, would we? Uh, I know from my own experience how quickly I forget the good things God has done and how easily I worry about tomorrow. Um... Throughout the gospel, Jesus does do signs, and he doesn't stop. In spite of the fact that he was not honored, in spite of the fact that it did not always produce the faith that he desired, he didn't stop uh, because there were some in whom it did produce faith because the seed of faith was there. Uh, But for us, it begins not by being impressed by his miracles, but by believing in God's promise. That's where it started with the official whose son was sick. He believed Jesus' promise. He believed the simple word that he could grasp. And he put his faith in it. And God expanded and grew that faith. And really the same is true for us. Uh, The starting place is not trying to be impressed with the big things God does, but to be convinced of his promises, that he is faithful to his word. At this time we're going to... uh, take communion and uh, I would like to kind of close this this thought from Isaiah chapter 53 Um, it really is just amazing to me how far Jesus took this this truth that honor didn't matter. You know, that that he was committed to God's mission no matter how much, not only honor it didn't didn't bring, but actually how much shame it brought upon himself. As we turn to this time of communion, I thought it would be good to just meditate on, on Isaiah 53, the first part, And I'm just going to read through the first few verses and just think about it in terms of of honor. Or the opposite of honor is shame. And really how much dishonor Jesus took on our behalf. He starts off, he says, Who has believed our message? Uh, To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? Uh, Who of us uh, believe absolutely in his promise? That's the ones he'll reveal his power to. He said, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, spouting from a root in dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. There was nothing naturally in Jesus that drew people to honor him because of his looks. Uh, It doesn't say he was an ugly guy. It also doesn't say he was you know, a really super handsome guy. There was nothing in his personal appearance that caused people to naturally honor him. In fact, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the bitterest of grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised, and we did not care. 
You know, the truth is that not only did his own people dishonor him, but before we came to Christ, we were really no different. Before we knew Christ, we, we paid no attention to him. We dishonored his gift in his life. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried and our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. You know, this morning, uh, I know there are likely to be some people here who are dealing with sorrows, who are carrying burdens, who are carrying difficulties in your life. You know, it says that Jesus was weighed down with our sorrows. He took upon himself on the cross our sin, and he took with it the sorrow and grief that is the fruit of sin. Um, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for our sins. Um, for his, I'm sorry, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us like strayed, have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. From prison and trial they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins and he was suffering their punishment? He had done no wrong and he never deceived anyone but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Let's pray. Father, the truth is that we all uh, hunger and crave honor. And it really is a part of how you have made us because you've made us and destined us for glory. But we uh, are not patient to receive the glory that comes from you. And so we chase after it from this world. We chase after it from our careers and our jobs. We chase after it from our families, from our homes. Uh, Or we want an identity as people with a good reputation. We want to be respected as people that uh, others would look up to. We want people to think we're important. Or what an example Jesus is that he pursued none of those things. That he was willing to take on himself shame and humiliation, grief that would weigh him down that he was willing to go on a mission to a people who totally rejected him. And indeed, Father, we know that in our own hearts uh, we have rejected him. And it's only by your grace that we've come to receive and accept him as our Savior. Lord, we thank you that he did not live for the honor of this world, but was obedient to death, even death on the cross, in order to gain the honor that comes from God the Father. And as we take a moment now to celebrate uh, Jesus' obedient death, his suffering, his body that was broken, so that he could carry and be weighed down by our grief and our heartache, Lord, may we find in those stripes great healing. And indeed, Father, that's the greatest miracle of all. Not what you do to our bodies, but the transforming work you've done in our heart and our soul. Lord God, that you make us new by the blood of Christ. If we will just turn to you 
and confess our sin and call upon You, we can be saved. And so we, we come to Your table to do that this morning. And we give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask as uh, 